This is Change Agents, conversations with human rights and social justice advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. My guests today are John Harkin, a longtime teacher and now assistant principal at the Integrated School in Derry, Londonderry, Northern Ireland, and Robin Young, also from Derry, Londonderry, now a retired police officer. Both men work to reduce sectarian tensions and the risk of violence between Catholic and Protestant youth. Let me just start by saying um, I can't remember ever being in a city that had two different names. So what's that about? Um, Originally, I have to say that um, Derry was its original name, Dark Holland Kill. That was its original traditional name, it has been known like as by that name for centuries. However, what happened was um, as the conflict in Ireland rose uh, greater and became a conflict on a European-wide scale, the city itself needed defended. And what happened was the city needed walls, which it still has to this day. And the walls were actually built by guilds from London who, who essentially funded the defences of the city. And they placed a stipulation that Derry would become London Derry because that's effectively where the money for its defences came. And, and how does um, does the word London Derry strike Protestants versus Catholics? Generally, generally, Catholics would prefer to call it Derry. Um, because of the connotations with London and British rule in Ireland that, 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 that bring the longer name. On a point of principle, um, Protestants generally would tend to call it Londonderry. Um, this only, I have to say, this really only came to, to the fore in the last decade when the city council wanted to change the name of the city officially to Derry from Londonderry. And that's where the the pushback came from. Okay, so now now I'd like to back up a little. Um, uh, there are a lot of people um, listening to this who have some knowledge of what are referred to as the troubles um, of Northern Ireland. Um, and I'm going to ask you to do something that is um, uh, ex- uh, almost impossible, but in five or six minutes to explain what this conflict is about. Robin, why don't you start and then John jump in? Okay, Steve. Um, Well, Ireland as a whole has been immersed in social, political and religious conflict for centuries, sometimes between its own clans and families, but more often with the British who colonised it in the 12th century. There have been various military, political and religious solutions that were attempted over the years to end the conflicts. However, in 1921, after a war of independence, the northern six counties of Ireland were created as Northern Ireland under British rule, supported by its unionist, loyalist and largely Protestant citizens. Just let me jump in. We have all those three words really mean the same thing, union, loyalist and Protestant. Yes, similar, similar political, social and religious thinking. Yeah. And it's a general term like... Like many communities, it's a general term that doesn't uh, include individuals, but generically, yes, it's the safest way of explaining it. And what would be the corresponding words for um, Catholic? 
while the remainder of Ireland became an independent republic supported by its nationalist republican and largely Roman Catholic citizens. That's but, 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 but I'm interested in for um, the people living who are Catholic, um, they're not just referred to as Catholic, there are other names. Yes, the nationalist or republican. Again, it's a socio-political religious uh, moniker, for want of a better word. I I stress again, it's only general. Not every Catholic thinks one way. Not every Protestant thinks another. So let's skip um, from uh, uh, 1921 up to the beginning of the so-called Troubles. Okay, so not everybody, of course, was in favour of the split. Uh, Many saw the agreement to divide Ireland as treachery against the idea of a united independent Ireland. And after a civil war and a series of armed insurgencies against the British in Northern Ireland, uh, the Northern Ireland conflict featured violence between the Catholic Nationalist Republicans who were stuck in a British-controlled state and that state's own Protestant Unionist loyalists. But the violence included attacks on the country's police force who were majority white male, Protestant, and known as the Royal Ulster Constabulary, or RUC. Uh, They were widely viewed as being basically the executive arm of continuing oppressive British rule. Our present trouble started in the late 1960s. Catholic nationalists in Northern Ireland, who were largely inspired by what they were seeing in the US civil rights movement, began to protest widely against the oppression that was inflicted on them by Northern Ireland's puppet Protestant loyalist devolved government. This, in turn, as I've said, escalated into 30 years plus of armed conflict between paramilitary organisations on both sides and the RUC who were supported by the British Army. That's the that's the phrase where the phrase the troubles came from. And the RUC is is uh, was the then name of the police. Yes, that's correct. Yes, I I I remember my first year in college and. 1969 at, at civil rights and anti-war protests, there also was um, free Bobby Sands. Yes. What did that refer to? In Irish tradition, um, there's a method by which you can protest. Uh, and it goes back to if you have a grievance with someone where you would demonstrate your grievance by going and sitting on their doorstep and effectively starving yourself uh, to draw attention to your plight or your cause. At this stage, what was happening was the British government was imprisoning people who uh, their communities felt were freedom fighters. They were imprisoning them as if they were criminals. And they wanted to maintain uh, a situation where it was called special category status. Special category status were essentially political prisoners, not criminal uh, prisoners. Uh, the British government wanted to end the special category status. And as a protest against that, Bobby Sands and a number of other Catholic nationalist Republican prisoners inside the jails started to refuse food and effectively starved themselves to death in protest. And maybe you can just um, bring it up to the Good Friday Agreement and then we uh, can talk about what's going on now. Yeah, well, the, the Good Friday Agreement, I'd have to say that I served with the RUC since 1986. I was posted to the city here, and it was a very, very violent place, like other places in Northern Ireland. 
we had to patrol with a lot of officers. We had to patrol with assault rifles. We had to use armored vehicles and we had to use the army as support. Even using helicopters, some stations had to be supported by flying in and out. Even the trash had to be flown out because it was too dangerous to travel by road. The Nationalist Republican uh, opposition to the RUC came from an organization called the Irish Republican Army, uh, who were basically there to try and bring about a united Ireland by use of arms or by force. Um, The problem was the area that we patrolled in did have a large number of Catholic Nationalist Republicans who were supporters of the IRA. And to be honest, we had a mutual loathing and hostility towards that community. And Robin, what taking it up um, to sort of the end of the, tr- the troubles and what the Good Friday Agreement was, what's the what roughly are the number of people who've been who were killed and um, and perhaps also um, injured or imprisoned? Steve, tens of thousands of people um, killed, seriously injured. Um, life-changing injuries, and also, as we're now finding as we move through a a transformed, uh, more peaceful process, post-traumatic stress is a a key player, uh, and mental health is a big, big issue within Northern Ireland. So let me just take it, um, uh, before we come to the present, just to explain what happened uh, with the Good Friday Agreement. Well, the Good Friday Agreement, um, I have to say, courtesy of George Mitchell, one of your fellow countrymen, who was an architect of the Good Friday Agreement, got the situation where the Irish government, the British government, and the other stakeholders involved in the conflict were eventually able to come into a room and discuss their issues and try and work out the changes that would need to be carried out in the community in order to make Northern Ireland a more peaceful place. So it created a peace. And, and the George Mitchell we're talking about is former Senator George Mitchell from, from Maine, who was the mediator and um, who successfully brokered the peace agreement. Yes, uh, that's right. Uh, Robin, that was quite a remarkable um, short description of a very complicated situation. John, let me, um, you've been teaching for, a long time. Uh, why did you become a teacher? I always wanted to teach because I felt it was something that would make a difference. Um, I had I had teachers from my earliest years in primary school who made a difference to me and to others around. Um, and it's just something that I always wanted to do. I think it was in the blood because there was a teaching tradition in the family on both sides going back as so, far as we can recall. Both your, both your parents? Mm-hmm. Um, our grandparents, 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 great grandparents. Yeah. Um, so um, I know you've taught at other schools, but as I think, I think you're close to 20 years at at um, Oak Grove Integrated College. Yeah, I'll be starting the 20th in a few weeks' so, time. So just so that uh, people listening who are in the U.S. Um, a um, and, and integrate a college in Northern Ireland um, is uh, is is not what we would think of as a college in the U.S. It's uh, John works at a high school. Now they're also 
it's middle school and elementary school. But can can you explain what what the um, the integrated what an integrated school or college is, or what the the integrated movement is? So the integrated movement um, was established by parents. There was a growing as Robbins outlined the troubles um, as the troubles flared the communities became increasingly polarised um, and people tended to stay in their own community and not mix. Um, and that allowed all sorts of suspicions and mistrust to develop and build. And John, let me just jump in for a second. What that meant was, um, if I'm correct, that schools were, um, uh, were either Catholic or Protestant for the, for the most part. For the most part, because the state had the state had provided schools, but the Catholic Church uh, re- required that Catholics attended Catholic schools. So the Catholic schools were attended by Catholics, which meant that, by and large, the state schools became de facto Protestant schools. So the vast majority of, of young people went to school and didn't mix with people from a different religious tradition. Um, and over the years, parents became more and more vocal um, and succeeded in 1981 in setting up a school in Belfast. Lagan College was the first. And then over the years, other integrated schools were set up. And the aim was to bring together children from backgrounds which were Catholic, Protestant and other, and that growing up together, they would learn um, to be part of a society which would be better than the society that was around them while they were at school. So the idea was that by, by mixing with others, it would break down the barriers, it would break down mistrust, and would allow people to learn from and about each other. And John, um, has it largely been successful? I would say it has been successful. Um, it was one strand in the Good Friday Agreement that I, I'm sad to say hasn't been developed in the way it should. The, the, the chapter of the Good Friday Agreement that focused on reconciliation um, had a requirement that government would work to promote and encourage integrated education. And unfortunately, that hasn't happened. So we still are only about 7% of the population would attend an integrated school, which means that 93% are going to schools where they mix really only with their own tradition. Um, And there, there have been initiatives. There's one called Shared Education, which is where students are brought between different schools um, for a variety of projects, and some of those have been successful. But our belief is that it's the, the day and daily um, contact with other people who we wouldn't normally meet that is the key success of integrated education. And um, I want to remind people that you are listening to WERU's show, Change Agents, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. <clears throat> We are talking today about how to reduce sectarian bias and the risk of violence among youth in Northern Ireland. My guests are John Harkin, a teacher and assistant principal at an integrated school, and Robin Young, a retired police officer. Both men work to reduce sectarian bias and the risk of violence between Catholic and Protestant young people. Um, John, you've been spending a lot of your time and effort in school as well as sometimes outside of school, uh, addressing social issues or human rights issues. What what brought you to that? Um, one of my responsibilities in school is integration, um, and that's over overall looking to make sure that we're doing as much as possible to 
to actively bring people together and to, to find areas where there would be potential conflict between people whose backgrounds are different. Um, and very early on, I realised that we should be guided by the young people um, and the, because the experiences in different integrated schools um, in different parts of Northern Ireland or north of Ireland, um, those experiences are different. Um, so for us, for instance, um, issues like remembrance of uh, war dead was significantly more controversial for us than it would have been for people in other areas of the country um, because of the events on what became known Bloody Sunday. Um, that made it more difficult for people locally to remember and it meant that we were faced at times with more opposition when we did want to reach out in, in remembrance ceremonies. And John, just are, are there are there particular incidents, not, not at school, that said to you, I... Things need to to stop. Stop. I, I remember in a conversation you talked about a particular bombing outside of at a checkpoint outside of Derry, Londonderry. Well, that that was an that was an event. Um, a lot that was before our school opened. Um, but but that was one of the events that that certainly changed attitudes in the community, where a local man was tied and, into and, and changed y- your attitude. Um, well, it certainly for me um, it would have confirmed for me that violence was never the answer. Um, that violence was always wrong. Um, I was born. Uh, the troubles were already well underway when I was born, and I I saw not. The demands of either side. I simply saw the human cost of it, um, because we we grew up with a daily toll of death and destruction. Um, the overwhelming voice that I heard from those news reports was the voice of families who said they didn't want another family to suffer as they had done. They didn't want reprisals. Um, so, the integrated school movement was really echoing that. It was the the quickest way to make change, to bring about a difference, um, was to bring people together so that. They wouldn't believe myths and um, wrong attitudes about the other. And those events at Koshquin um, featured significantly in some of the projects we were able to work with. And Robin can talk more about it, yeah, the well, Theatre well. Witness Project, um, because that brings people from different backgrounds who suffered sometimes at each other's hands in our conflict. It brings them together to to work through that process and use theatre as a way of expressing that. But that's been hugely powerful in terms of uh, allowing our young people to to learn about the past and also to learn um, that it's important to question what they hear in, in some of what they hear about and, the past. And we're going we're gonna to talk about whether, how difficult that can be sometimes. Um, Robin, let me turn to... To, to you, you you now work on reducing tensions and violence in Northern Ireland. But your 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 first job coming out of school was to join the British Army, if I'm correct. Yes, yeah, Steve. Um, I served briefly with the military, and as I said, I joined the RUC in 1986. I was posted to the city, and as I said, it was a very dangerous place to work. And part of that danger and part of that risk um, detached the police from the community it was supposed to serve. If, you, if you're going to patrol in armoured vehicles and helicopters, the chances of building good relations with the community were really, really poor. 
And you're uh, now referring to the when you were in the army. Well, uh, army and police. I mean, the, the police in this country would have patrolled very similar to the army. A, a, a routine patrol on foot in Derry, Londonderry, would have been eight officers all spaced out across the street. Similar to the sort of patrolling we see in Iraq, uh, in Afghanistan, it was more military in in style and outlook than it was of that of a police service. Um, my duties brought me first-hand experience of, of some of Northern Ireland's worst and most tragic times. Um, I cleared the scene of the explosion that John just talked about on the border. So can you can you briefly describe what as an as an awful example of what the so-called troubles brought? Well, what happened was um, Patrick Gillespie was actually a civilian. He wasn't a soldier. He wasn't a police officer. He wasn't a combatant. But because jobs were hard to find in the city at the time, he took a job working in various military bases as a civilian cook. One night, um, he returned home with his wife um, and found that his house had been taken over by armed and masked men. They held the family against their will at gunpoint and they took him away. Um, What they subsequently did was they chained him into a van full of explosives and made him drive that van under threat of killing his family. They made him drive that van into the middle of a checkpoint on the on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, just outside uh, the city. And the minute he got the van driven right into the middle of the checkpoint, they pr- pressed a remote control device, which detonated the van. It killed him and it killed six other soldiers. Um, that was what John was talking about. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've been... I'm not sure whether I was with, with you, Robin, at that point, but um, I remember going through that checkpoint, which at that, at that point was not a checkpoint at all because there are no borders yes. or barriers, um, but heard the story. And, um, you know, I, I've heard many adults in Northern Ireland say that anti-Catholic and anti-Protestant bias is all but gone. It's a Good Friday agreement. We don't really need to worry about this. Um, the, the tensions are gone. Uh, what would you say, Robin, to that? And maybe no, a personal experience. No, it, it definitely hasn't gone. Don't get me wrong. The peace process that George Mitchell helped to facilitate was amazingly effective. It plummeted levels of violence in Northern Ireland. And it also managed to transform the type of violence we faced, not only in terms of its regularity. John was quite right. When we were growing up in Northern Ireland, there were killings, there were murders, and there were bomb explosions every single day. Now they're much fewer and further apart, and they're being perpetrated by fewer and fewer people who have less and less support from the community they come from. I'm wondering if you can give an example of your own. Bearing in mind that the peace process has been with us for over 10 years now, just before I retired from what became the police service of Northern Ireland, um, at about three o'clock in the morning, um, my wife woke up. We don't know whether she heard something or whether she got a sixth sense that something was going wrong outside our house. And when she looked out our bedroom window, she just, in time, 
saw a man who was placing something underneath my car. When she knocked the window, the guy ran off and, and escaped in his car. Um, but when we went out, we realized that in actual fact, what had happened was somebody had put a magnetic uh, improvised explosive device under my private car at my own home with the intent of killing me, seriously injuring me. So whilst the, whilst the peace process has been remarkably effective, there are still isolated incidents in Northern Ireland that are the product of the hatred between communities um, based on religious and racial or political background. And Robin, um, if you were going out to your car, um, uh, would that bomb have killed you or would you have... Oh, yes. They're used because they're, 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 and historically they've been very effective at assassinating police officers using the, those devices. Um, but, on, um, but I've never been in a car, getting into a car with you without you first um, uh, taking out a stick with a mirror and looking under. Yeah. So yeah. it probably would have happened. I always, said, I always said to my younger colleagues, if you get into your car in the morning to come to work, and you don't look underneath it, you're a fool. It's the thing that is so simply prevented. And I did it. I, I regularly did it anyway. But, but, but I, you know, for me, as somebody who's come on and off for 16 years to, to, to Northern Ireland, um, uh, it's hard for me to think about that as just uh, a daily precaution. It's the conflict is not at an end and and uh, John coming to you what do you what do you see between between students um, not just in uh, citywide uh, but also uh, even in your school between Catholic and and Protestant students um, there are ongoing issues um, and particularly when things happen in the community there will be reactions to those um, but our sense of things is that, by and large, there are a huge number of things in Northern Ireland or North of Ireland which are never discussed. Um, when people get together, they they almost instinctively know to avoid certain things. So there aren't the normal conversations that there would be in other places. Um, and we feel that if we're going to normalise, we need to be able to have those conversations um, and to have them in an atmosphere of trust uh, where people can express opinions which are very different from those of others, but that they can respect them. And what we tend to do, by and large, in society is that we avoid those difficult conversations because we don't know how to have respectful differences of opinion. Um, and what we encourage the young people to do is to express their point of view whilst recognising that there are points of view which are different and that that's part of a healthy, normal society. And um, I know in my experience, um, both working at your integrated school, but also at Catholic and Protestant schools, that the the use of highly degrading language about Protestants or Catholics um, exists in youth culture. Is, is that your experience as well? It is. It is. It is definitely there. Um, and at certain points, um, external events will inflame that. Um, but it, it would convince me that beneath the surface, um, 
that absence of contact and understanding of the other uh, is what the problem has been. And so the work that you've done with us in terms of bringing young people together, bringing young people to have dialogue with police officers, all of that humanizes the other and it all helps them to see that there's more that links us and unites us than separates us. Um, and I think it's possibly one of the things in the early days of of the pandemic that people have realised. Um, and yet in other ways, we seem to have diverged and those those traditional differences seem to have resurfaced again. We'll come, we'll come back to that. Um, John, you, you uh, described to, to, to me earlier a a significant positive interaction between your school and another school. And maybe you could describe that. And then Robin, you had some involvement in the same incident, which um, perhaps you can follow up on. But it's, it's a number of years ago, there was, there was a tension between groups of young people and another school had opened uh, fairly close to ours. And at the point where students from our school were, getting off their school bus, students were leaving the other school. Um, and there'd been increasing concern expressed to the principals of each school by parents um, that there, there was just growing tension and the parents were concerned that there was likely to be violence. And then as the days went what, on... What kind of violence? Is well, it guns? Is it... It was in, initially it was it was simply worded as violence and it was very vague. Um, but as the days went on, uh, one report suggested that there was the pos- possibility of one of the students using a knife. And the police had been, as far as we were aware, the police were there as a presence because adults in the community had come out to support the young people because they felt that the young people were under threat. Um, and this really grew the tension. Um, and when we looked at it, we felt that the safest, um, well, really the only option that we had in terms of approaching it was to do what we'd done before. And that was to get the young people together. So we carefully selected young people who we felt were closest to whatever the tension was. And we had dialogue with them, um, which you'd facilitated. And what was most surprising was that Initially, the students stayed separately, um, but the students from the two schools wouldn't necessarily have been particularly close friends within each school, um, but they formed a a group. um, And then as the day went on, they they began to talk to each other and we addressed head on the issues and the the potential violence. Um, And the students went off into a week's break from school um, and when they returned, um, I spoke to one of the students to ask how things were. Um, and she said, it's fine. We speak to each other. There's not a problem. And it was as dramatic as that. But what struck me was her surprise that I asked her um, because she she had absolute faith that the, that, the, that the dialogue would work. I think we went in in hope that it would work. But she went in absolutely convinced and was surprised that I had to check in because in her opinion, it had all gone away. Yeah. I remember the last question as we were finishing a five-hour dialogue between students from your school and uh, another school. And somebody said, well, what do we do tomorrow at the the bus station? Um, 
I should have thought of it, but I hadn't. And I said, well, just say hello by name. And I remember when I came back, the next time I came back, nobody had ever told me about what it what had happened. I ran into um, a, um, a girl from your school, and I said, well, what happened the next next time? That uh, the next day when you went to the bus stop, said, well, we just said each other's first names and said, hello. Robin, you had some connection with this, as I recall. Yes, I was the supervisor for the community policing team in the area where this incident was happening. And we didn't know that we had a problem until members of the public started calling in going, this is crazy. We've got young people on either side of a four-lane freeway who are taunting at each other, shouting, um, throwing objects like stones and bottles, whilst very heavy late afternoon traffic was passing in both directions in front of them. Um, It rippled into community living areas on either side of the freeway. And initially, we didn't know what to do. And there is a big temptation in Northern Ireland, particularly in, in and around law enforcement, is that if you get two groups of people who uh, cannot or will not work together, then what we do is we divide them and we keep them apart and the police stand in the middle and push both sides back. The problem is, yes, that solves the problem in the very, very short term, but it's not a long-term solution. So when you and I got talking and I discovered that you were actually working on the other side of the same problem, looking at long-term solutions, I was really glad to see that because we needed a long-term solution and keeping people apart so that they can continue to dehumanize each other is an absolute recipe for continuing conflict. And and I think I would add, um, um, who's in the middle likely to be the the recipient of the rocks? It's, It's the police because... Both communities have issues with the police as well. <laughs> yeah, well, and also sometimes people can't throw as far as they want to. <laughs> yes, yes, and it creates it creates wider fear, and you can see that 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 escalation that you talk about, Steve. This started with just a group of of young people, but it didn't take long before parents started turning up, and then people who lived in the streets and communities nearby started turning up. And suddenly a problem that might have involved 20 or 30 young people suddenly involves 100, 200, 300 people and starts pitting communities against each other. And and in this case, I think both from the school and the community perspective, it stopped. It stopped. It stopped. It stopped there. And then as soon as the dialogue happened, as soon as those young people got the opportunity to humanize each other and realize that really we are all not that different then the problem went away and there was no need for any further enforcement action. It meant that what officers I had could be deployed onto other issues because the problem stopped and we knew because of the dialogue that it wasn't going to reoccur. You are listening to WERU's show Change Engines, Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates. I'm Steve Westler. We are talking today about how to reduce sectarian bias and the risk of violence among youth in Northern Ireland. My guests are John Harkin, a teacher and assistant principal at an integrated school, and Robin Young, a retired police officer. Both men work tirelessly to reduce sectarian bias and the risk of violence between Catholic and Protestant youth. Um, 
Well, Robin, sometimes um, these issues uh, occur in or between schools, and other times it's uh, between um, what some people refer to as an interface as between Curry Nairn and Tolly Alley. Could, could you talk about um, the, the kind of tensions and uh, when you have a Catholic and Protestant community uh, all only separated by a fence? Yes, well, there we're, we go back to the, the classic Northern Ireland method of dealing with conflict, which is to erect a wall or a fence to permanently keep communities apart, which and it just continues to engender mistrust. But certainly an interface area in Northern Ireland is an area where a largely Protestant community and a largely Catholic community sit side by side. Sometimes, as you've seen, Steve, only divided by uh, perhaps a street, maybe 20 or 30 yards wide. Um, what we find is with with a certain degree of adult uh, acceptance at particular times of the year, young people will go out into these areas and start to mark these areas as if it's territorial. Um, the nationalist Republican side would fly the green, white and, and gold Irish tricolor flag to indicate their, their adherence to a national to an Irish Republic. And the other side would fly, the Protestant Unionist Loyalists would fly Union Jacks and Northern Ireland flags. And it becomes very, very tense. Um, one of the saddest things that we saw that we had to deal with was that for a long time, the, the city itself is, is divided by the River Foyle. There's a West Bank and an East Bank. The East Bank tends to be largely Protestant Loyalist. The West Bank tends to be Nationalist and Republican. Um, when the Peace Bridge was built, a footbridge that symbolised all our hope for the future was built across the River Foyle. It ended up, it finished up in a, in a place called St. St. Columns Park. St. Columns Park beforehand had really only been a place where Protestant loyalist people went because it was on what they would deem as their side of the river. But with the Peace Bridge, it's, it started to work the way it was intended. People from either side of the river would cross the river and start to mingle and socialise in uh, the other side's area. Um, and we saw an awful lot of um, interface conflict arise in and around the park as groups of young nationalists and groups of young loyalists would have met in the park. And inevitably, because there was no dialogue and dialogue wasn't being promoted, it escalated into the violence too. And uh, what kind of strategies or skills did... The, um, did the police and others use to reduce? Initially, the problem was that we, we started off with like low-key community policing, officers on pedal, pedal cycles, officers on foot. Uh, when the violence was directed towards the, the police, we found that we inevitably ended up escalating. And again, we fell into this trap of trying to divide communities rather than finding a long-term solution uh, to bring them together. So inevitably what happened, if it was a Saturday evening, there was a problem in the park. Anybody who was nationalist, Republican or Catholic got pushed back across the Peace Bridge from the East Bank to the West Bank. And those who were living in the East Bank were kept in the park to keep them apart, reinforcing the divide that the river sometimes causes. And, and at some point, was there a different approach? Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, we went to St. Colm's Park House, which was right in the middle of the park, and they're a peace and reconciliation centre. So this was happening on their doorstep, and they were able to bring ourselves, you, and a number of other stakeholders together. The key issue being that we needed somebody who could train police officers how to approach young people respectfully, mindful of their rights, but also to try and engage in dialogue with them. Um, and that was that was very, very successful because it wasn't only police officers, it was park rangers, it was city community safety wardens, and it also in, involved members of the public who otherwise would have been on one side or the other, seeing the validity of and the value of bringing young people together to engage in dialogue, again, to humanise these this this community that they've never met and never seen before. So, um, John um, or Robin, other other programs that you've worked on uh, that are successful in trying to reduce the tensions between the so-called two sides, the Protestants and Catholics. One of the most visionary projects that uh, I think came out of our troubles was the Spirit of Inniskillen project, and it was uh, set up by a man, Gordon Wilson, whose daughter was the youngest victim of the Enniskillen bomb in 1987. Um, she was 20, and she was buried in the rubble, and he described reaching through the rubble to squeeze her hand, and he said that the last words she said to him were, Daddy, I love you very much. And later that evening, when they were told that she had died, he wanted the the legacy of her death to be one that would bring people together. Um, so he set up the Spirit of Enniskillen Trust, which ran for many years until it sadly closed. Um, and it brought people together from the different backgrounds and it brought them to other areas um, to learn from other areas about conflict, um, about uh, the difficulties of working with others, but also the benefits of doing it. Um, and through that work, we were able to make a link with um, Roosevelt High School in Seattle, uh, where there was an existing link with South Africa and a program there called Hands for a Bridge. Um, and the idea was that by getting young people together to look at their own community, um, and it, it could help them to understand their community as they would present it to others from outside. And we saw through that very powerfully how our young people from Northern Ireland were able to shed a light in that school on racism, which the children in the school weren't really aware of. Oh, just just as just as they could do the same when they visited us, they could they could highlight for us things that they they saw as as separating young people, which our own young people didn't necessarily see. I, I think um, that that pro- program uh, was seemed to have been extraordinarily powerful. And uh, for either of you, um, from my perspective, it's you can have this have this work and be very powerful. But if you if you don't. If it, if it doesn't continue sooner or later, um, it's the rocks being thrown or petrol bombs being thrown, what we might call Molotov cocktails. Uh, um, uh, do, do we still need to 
to be careful? I mean, are we at a, are you at a point where um, everything's fine? No, no I think, yeah, I, I would say yes. We need to continue. We need to continue because there is still an element within our communities, and I'm talking about adults here who are not challenging the sectarianism that they hear or are actively supporting sectarianism that then filters down to their own children. And whilst that is still going on, we still have work to do. There's, there is no doubt about it. Children are not born with bias. Children are not born to be discriminatory. They learn this and they learn this in the communities in which they grow up. And in challenge it, then in, we'll have to do the work. In, in the communities on both sides, there are extraordinarily powerful murals um, that um, reflect and remember uh, the worst of the troubles. And I wonder whether some of those powerful murals that boys and girls walk by every day on their way to school are glorifying teenagers becoming, in essence, guerrilla warfare participants. That's that's the problem that that a lot of places who have political and religious and social conflict face, in that it becomes mythologised. It becomes where young people who, as I said, aren't born with bias or discriminatory uh, attitudes are gradually influenced by those who are older in the community who um, are saying to them, look, this is our community's cause and your grandfather fought for this cause and your father fought for this cause and it is now your turn. The guy who put the bomb under my car could only have been about six or seven years of age when the peace process arrived in Northern Ireland. He has learned his hatred from somebody else, probably an adult as he's been growing up, so much so that he felt it, that his duty lay in carrying you know, a kilo of Semtex plastic explosive with a tilt switch and a magnet and going, travelling over 100 miles to a village that he'd never been to before, to walk up to somebody's house having been told it was a police officer living there, and to put that under that officer's car with the intent of killing him. He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't born like that. He was constructed like that because of the community and the society and the fact that nobody was doing that work with him and probably some of his other other peers. So uh, have things slowed, become calmer during COVID-19's time on this uh, in Northern Ireland and everywhere else, but there's good perspective. I would say that it's hard to know. Um, we will know more when we return. Um, certainly in the initial stages of lockdown, when people really did stay in, um, it probably did calm things. Um, those families that I was in contact with spoke of how they had become more family orientated. They stayed together. They looked out for each other. Um, but I think we'll know the bigger picture when this is over. Um, Robin, what's your, do you have any concerns about what happens when we get a vaccine, hopefully soon? And 
I just, I, I really hope that my words are not don't materialise, but I could see us being dragged back in. Already, we can see um, at the start of the the pandemic, at the start of the lockdown restrictions, we could see communities really, really pulling together. We see communities looking after their elderly, their vulnerable. The food drops being made, people caring for their neighbours, people supporting our health service. It was amazing. But I have to say, I have to use the P word, politically, it soon degenerated um, with uh, various events that happened, which then got our, our, our partisan politicians pointing fingers at each other and accusing each other. And that made me think, no, well, we really haven't learned that much of a lesson if we can get away from this. The, the most recent one was an attendance at a Republican funeral. Uh, it didn't take long before one political party started pointing fingers at another political party and turning on politicising what really shouldn't be a political issue. I, I, I think the work that both of you have done for so many years is not only incredibly important, but really difficult. Um, I'd like you, if you can, to think of one incident with kids that's, that didn't work, that was hard, that um, we, we might not think of a success, um, uh, but that just reminds us how difficult this is, either one of you. Well, um, <clears throat> I, I mentioned the issues in St. Columns Park. Uh, groups of young people who were Catholic, Nationalist, Republican, uh, and groups of Protestant, Unionist, Loyalist, young people, all all in their early or mid-teens, when they should be out enjoying good weather, would end up clashing in the park. And on one evening, I was on patrol in the park, and I, my favourite way of getting around the park, and the most effective way, is on a, on a mountain bike. And I came across these two groups in a standoff position, probably... 20 or 30 yards apart. So I went to one group and I said, you, you know, what's going on here? And they said, well, we're from the other side of the city. We need to get down to the Peace Bridge to get back to that area of the city. But that crowd over there, they don't like us and they're in the way. And I said, okay, so hold on a second. So I went to the other group and I said, well, why are you standing in the way of these people? And they said, well, we don't trust them. We don't like them. They're over on our side of the river in our park to confront us. And I said, so if I can, where are you going to go? And they said, well, we want to go past them to go to another area of the park. And I said, okay, so I'm a police officer. I can call some colleagues. What, what, what's the problem? And both groups told me the same thing. If we go past them, they're going to attack us. And I'm saying, can you hear both of your, both groups saying the same thing, expressing the same fears. I can stand here and make sure that you both pass in peace to get to where you need to go. It's tragic when you hear two young, two groups of young people expressing the same fears but not listening to each other, going, hey, they're afraid of us as we are of them. And that's if that was a negative thing, and I, that really bothered me because I couldn't get two groups of people to walk past each other even in silence. But there was a positive out of that because that's when we started, that's when we engaged in Collins Park House, when we went and said, this is how bad it has got, that kids can't even play in the park. 
and, or the mistrust. And, and, and that's when the work on de-escalation yes. came yes. up. John, a particular incident that uh, sticks with you is difficult. I carry with me one where uh, a group of young people used to go out from school to mix with students from other schools in, in a training centre. Um, and on one occasion, a young person from a Protestant background um, felt under threat verbally. Um, and then with that came the anxiety that there could be more than verbal threat. Um, and in spite of the valiant efforts of the, the several senior staff from the training centre and in our own school, um, that young person left the school and went to a school that was entirely attended by people from his tradition because that's the only way in which his parents felt that he would be safe. And I carry that as one of those tragedies that in this current era, which we call a peace process, a young person's whole life has been marked out by the fact that he had to leave school because of sectarian bias and that nothing that any of us, all of whom they accepted, were completely committed um, to trying to make life better and safer for him. That wasn't enough. Um, and it reinforced for me the fact that we need to keep going day and daily because it doesn't take very many of those kind of incidents to, to, to reinforce the culture that people aren't safe if they are in a minority in a particular area. And what we need to keep doing is to building that trust um, and giving people the opportunity to realise that where there is fear, um, there's always a choice and we need to give them the support to see that they can overcome those fears. Yeah, it's uh, it, it requires uh, both of you and many, many others, not only adults, but young people as well, to um, stay the course. Um, uh, so, um, Robin, I, I know you have uh, um, grandchildren, and John, I, as I understand, you have an extended family, and um, but, but also the, the people you um, continue to teach and work with in schools. Um, what's, what's your hope for this next generation or maybe the current generation of students who might be 11, 12, 13, 14? What's your, what's your hope for those students and for Northern Ireland? Um, and you each have about one minute on this. So, Steve, uh, I believe that educating our young people in understanding and respecting human rights and empowering them to challenge the injustices that they see and experience, it's the key to reducing the personal and social harm of racial and, uh, racial co and religious conflict. Young people who we can make aware of the role of bias and make them aware of how it sustains conflict, who are prepared and willing to challenge the paradigms inflicted on their past, they're the key to our future. Thank you. And John, in just uh, about 40 seconds, what's your My hope is that the adults will encourage those young people to find within themselves the courage they need to act on the inner voice that as young people go to each other knowing that there is more that unites us and that people who aren't like us are people just like us. My hope is that they will be able to act on what they feel inside rather than what they feel they should do based on how they perceive a community to want them to act. Thank you. And as somebody who has 
spent time over 16 or more years in Northern Ireland, most of it in, in Derry, in London Derry. Um, I think what it takes is people of courage to step into difficult situations. And both of you have done that. And my admiration for the work that you each have done um, knows no bounds. So thank, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Change Agents on WERU, conversations between human rights and social justice advocates. I'm Steve Wessler. Today's guests were John Harkin, an assistant principal in the Integrated School in Derry, Londonderry, Northern Ireland, and uh, Robin Young, a retired police officer. Both men worked to reduce bias and the risk of sectarian violence between Protestant and Catholic youth. Um, thank you both. <laughs>